Hello, friends. Come on in. Glad to have you here. Now, you'll notice that this episode was not entitled Article. From now on, when any episode you see has the beginning title of Volume, that means it is a Notes with the Narrator episode. It means we're going to delve deep into the mechanics, the rulings, talk about some gameplay, and really traverse the depths of Seventh Sea, if you'll pardon the pun. And it won't just be me talking your ear off for the next hour. There will be guest speakers with me. Sometimes players, such as Evan and Patrick, sometimes other GMs, and sometimes very special guests. For those of you who are familiar with the game and its mechanics, and don't really need this episode, feel free to skip. You can always come back to it later. There will be no spoilers revealed in any of these episodes. We will only talk about what has been released previous. You won't be missing much. But if you would like to stay and learn a bit more about the system, maybe brush off the rust on your own techniques and listen to a different perspective on how rules are run, feel free to join us. I'm going to stay? All right then. Today, I have the person who introduced me to 7th Sea. The reason why I am obsessed with this game and everything about it. And without any further ado, this is Sam Pearson. Hi, everybody. I am Sam. I am not a cast member of this amazing podcast. I am its number one fan, though, because I got the opportunity to be a fan of it before anybody else. So, haha, I have that privilege, at least. So tell us a bit about yourself. How did your journey to 7C begin? So I work at a game store. I play a lot of RPGs. It is my obsession. It is the biggest thing in my life. I met my wife when she joined my D&D table. She was impressed by my dwarf voices. I get the opportunity to play a lot of RPGs. So when 7C came across my path and I read it and I fell in love with it, I needed to do something with it. And so I got Zoe and a few other people and said, would you like to play this game? And the answer was definitely yes, because it's several years later and we're still playing it. And after a few months, I even started understanding the system, which is very helpful. I have had the opportunity to make a lot of mistakes with it and learn from those mistakes. And the more that Zoe has done this, the more I have thought about 7C. And so I'm here to help her think about 7C and help all of you think about 7C. Join me in this. One of us. Sorry, not sure what just happened there. <laughs> so it's safe to say that you've played and run a vast variety of games. What makes 7C different from all of those games? The thing that makes 7C so different is that it's pretty much backwards from every other RPG. The way that it approaches the fundamentals of an RPG are different. In D&D, you say, I want to do this thing. I want to tackle this specific obstacle, this single moment in time. And we know what the outcome will be if you succeed or fail. And you roll the die to see if you do it. It is binary, success, failure. This is true for most RPGs. Even more narrative RPGs, you say, I want to try to do this thing, and you roll the dice, and there's usually succeed, fail, or succeed at a cost to get the story to go in cool directions. This is not what 7C does. 7C 
you say, eh, here's how I'm handling the situation. Not a specific obstacle, but the situation. And you roll, and that tells you how much plot fuel you have to address the situation. Then you decide how to spend it. You don't start deciding outcomes until after you roll. So that's already very different from every other RPG out there. The other thing that's different about this is 7C is a very narrative game. And there are other narrative games out there. There's Fate, there's Blades in the Dark. There's some very, very good narrative games. But if you're not used to them, it can be a little odd to have a system where the story is the most important thing. Story is a part of play. The mechanics can't happen on their own. A narrative system, the story is a key component of play, even a key component of the mechanics. And without the story, the mechanics might as well not exist. And so both of these things taken together, a system that falls flat without the story and a system that approaches every situation backwards creates a game that has a bit of a learning curve or more of an unlearning curve. You have to forget what you know in order to play the system as it is meant to be played. Because you can play it like D&D, but you won't be satisfied because it's not a better D&D than D&D is. And I don't mean to keep harping on D&D, but it is the elephant in the room. I'm going to acknowledge it. It's right there. It's the biggest RPG on the planet. We will all accept that. So in the barest of terms, down to its base molecules, is move and roll versus roll and move. 7C is very roll and move, which means some things are different. Everything's different. Everything. Combat, how you tackle certain things, even character creation is so much different. This game is just different, and there's a lot for us to talk about. There are going to be many volumes of Notes of the Narrator. However, this first episode is going to be about raises, risks, and sequences. And I'll touch a little bit on house rules. Let's start with the currency of the game. The resource in which heroes do the things that they do. Let's talk about raises. Yeah, let's define terms here. The molecule of the system is the raise. Raises are what arise from the dice. When you try to do things in the game, when you take risk, which we'll talk about, but basically anytime you're rolling the dice, you're making raises, which is you're rolling a mess of d10s and then making sets of 10. You take the numbers on the dice and add them together into little clumps. And every time you hit a total of 10, you set that clump aside and move on to the next couple dice. So if you have a pair of fives, awesome. Set those aside. That's a raise. If you have a six, a three, and a two, goes a little over, but that's a raise. So then you have raises. What are they for? Raises are not successes. This is something to drive into. There are other games that use D10s where you roll a bunch of them and look for certain numbers. And those numbers represent successes and like degree of success. That is not what raises are in 7C. Raises are narrative agency. Raises represent what you can do about the scene that you're in. They are a resource that you spend to change the story. 
or to give yourself narrative control over things, sometimes to declare details to things, or just generally affect the outcome of how things are going. If you don't have raises, the scene is a roller coaster you are riding. You do not change how things go. If you do have raises, you get to steer. And that's very different from, do I manage to knock this door down? It's a much broader and more powerful tool than just a binary pass fail kind of thing. Has it been hard to teach that to the guys? It is a bit of a learning curve. At one point, Patrick added up all of the dice to get a grand total and then divided that total by 10 to get how many races he had. And I wasn't quite sure where he got that from. I had to go and check the rules to make sure it was reading as it should and not being read as anything else. Still not sure why that happened. I know why. Do tell. The word remainder. Ah, yes. That makes sense now. Any dice you don't add into your total that don't help you get to a 10 are called remainders, and the DM can buy them and do things with them. But as soon as you see remainder, you flash back to third grade, and it's just like, oh, I'm just totaling and dividing. No, it's not that. Forget your math. Forget math class. You won't need it here. Oh, we still need math. We need to add up to 10 and or 15s. Okay, don't forget all of your math, but just most of it. All right. We've got our raises. We know what they're for. We know how to use them. This brings us to risk. The reason why we rolled the raises in the first place. Cool. This is another important thing. People look at risks, and it is the resolution mechanic of the game, sure. But risks are not obstacles to be overcome, like in literally every other system. They are not just, I want to trip this guy. That's not a risk. I want to unlock this door. Well, that's not a risk. A risk isn't an obstacle to be overcome. It's a chance that you're taking. There are dangers involved. They are literally risks. If you say, I want to pick this lock. Well, devoid of any circumstances, that's not really a risk. We look at your character sheet and say, is this the kind of person who could pick a lock? And if they are, sure, lock's picked. If the lock you wish to pick is on the golden casket sitting in the center table of the ball in Montaigne while people are dancing around and inside is the king's scepter and you want to pick that lock, perhaps quickly, and maybe retrieve what is inside and maybe close it again and get away with that without being stabbed by musketeers. Well, now we have ourselves a risk. So that's the big thing. This is a risk is an opportunity to change the scene, but it's always taking a chance, which is why risks also have approaches where when you define your skill and your trait that you're using for the risk, it's what about you sets you up to succeed at this or to fail at this. Maybe that's what's more interesting to you. But what is most likely to see you through this chance? And what are you relying on when you go at it? This doesn't have to be your best dice pool. It's whatever makes sense within the fiction. It's whatever you kind of describe yourself doing. You haven't done risks yet, right? Not yet. I wanted to teach Evan and Patrick the more complicated sequences together before I went into individual risks. Theoretically, I could have run the Kip interaction as a risk as well as the scouting mission in the rowboat. However, 
they decided to stay as far away as possible, and Wayland having eagle eyes helps a lot. It's very easy for him to pick out details from a literal mile away. The other thing here is, as the GM here, you have a lot of control in how you set these things up. The person who had the information they needed was Captain Kip. This random, ridiculous fisherman in a tiny little rust bucket boat that they can just blow out of the water whenever they want. What if it was another captain? What if it was a captain that Jesse had a rivalry with? Suddenly, there's a give and take here. The tone of those negotiations becomes more intense. Likewise, you could have decided that the only way to get the information they needed was by taking more of a chance. For instance, if Wayland did not have eagle eyes, that opportunity is lost to them. He can't pick out detail literally a mile away. So the circumstances will determine it. And the circumstances are based on your characters and the situation. And largely it depends on how you want the game to flow. And that actually brings us to sequences. So what's a sequence? A sequence is a big, big risk. You mostly want to use it when you've got multiple heroes involved in the same big chance that you're trying to do, when the stakes are very high, when the GM just wants to put a lot of screen time on something, when it feels important, when the effects of it are going to be long-lasting or vast. If the fate of nations are in the balance, yeah, let's do a sequence. Other than scale, what is the actual difference between using a risk and using a sequence? The difference between using risks and sequences is how much time you want to spend on them, how dramatic you want it to be. If you look at movies, we spend a lot of time on some of these things. There's the fight with Inigo Montoya and the three guards that charge him, who die in literally a second and a half, or there's Inigo Montoya fighting the man in black or fighting Count Ruben. It's when, as a GM, you feel like, no, this is important. Let's take our time on this. Let's make this cool. So that's when to use a sequence. And of course, there are two different sequences. An action sequence and a dramatic sequence. We'll get to action in a minute. Dramatic sequences. They are a strange, strange beast. I've been running 7C for almost three years now, and I still get tripped up on them. They still give me a little bit of trouble. How are they for you? Better than they were. Again, lots of time thinking about this. So what is a dramatic sequence? The definition for a dramatic sequence that I've found most useful is to look at it as a long-form opportunity, a chance for action that's usually time-sensitive. You want to get something done. You have a chance to do it if you act now. I can find out what the Sheriff of Nottingham's plans are, but I have to go to the ball and listen in on his conversation with the prince. If you don't do that, you're going to have to waylay his guards later and try to intercept orders or kidnap the prince himself or take a bigger chance. But right now you've got this golden opportunity sitting right here, but that opportunity isn't going to last forever. A dramatic sequence is easiest to form when everybody has clear goals... That's very important. And clearly defined stakes, high stakes preferably, where if we fail at this, that's going to cause problems for us. And you need some kind of pressure to it, you know, that provides the stakes. Usually it's time pressure. 
Other types of pressure can work, but time is something that everybody can understand. I've only got this narrow window of opportunity. And the other thing about dramatic sequences is this is a chance for players to GM for themselves, declaring story details that normally would be the GM's job to declare. Yes. Dramatic sequences allow the characters a little bit more narrative agency to the point where they can establish story details. Normally, what I would do is set up everything, the landscape, the opposition, the allies, anything you can use. Literally, I paint a picture for them. Dramatic sequences allow them to add certain things. Patrick established that the drunken soldiers would interact with the barrels that were in his rowboats, realize they weren't rum, and leave the rowboats alone, leaving Jesse able to escape without notice. Subsequently, Evan made it so that all of the soldiers on the beaches were camped away from the cages, making it easier for him to sneak up behind them. And as we learned before, raises are there for narrative agency, affecting the outcome of the scene. In a dramatic sequence, that's loosened up even more, where if your approach would allow you to discover something, you can declare what you have discovered in the act of discovering it. You know, you search this guy's pockets and there's a note from the Baron. Jim's like, well, that's news to me. What does it say? That's totally legit. Because players can declare these story details, they often can create their own problems, which Zoe is very fond of doing in my game. This means that dramatic sequences don't have clearly defined consequences and opportunities like action sequences do, or like risks do. Here, it's a little more freeform. Also, villains typically aren't rolling dice in this. Villains mostly don't roll dice, except in an action sequence when they need to stab you. So the way I usually run dramatic sequences, if there's a villain nearby, is the villain can react, can do things in the scene, and the players have to catch up with all of the dramatic agency they can muster using their raises. So you're spending your raises throughout the dramatic sequence trying to change where this scene is going, trying desperately to steer. Once you're out of raises, wherever you've managed to aim this thing is where it's going. And that doesn't always mean failure. Everything you've created has happened. You know, everything you've established is true. And the villain can't necessarily undo it all just by fiat because the villain has to operate by the rules of story. They don't get raises, so it's very hard for them to completely negate what you do. When you are out of raises, you have made your bed, and now you must lie in it. <laughs> and it can definitely lead to some interesting places. Let's talk about your dramatic sequence in that last episode that I loved so much. Yes, okay. So both Wayland and Jesse had a very clear joint goal. Rescue the crew of the Black Betty... Don't get shot down by the intrepid or the intrepid soldiers. Really, really simple. Waylon disguises himself as a crazed ATC soldier lost at sea who washes up, approaching this with panache and convince, and Jesse sneaks around while Wayland is being the distraction, using finesse and theft. So when you establish your approach, it defines what your dice you're rolling and generally how you're handling the situation. Most times in sequences and in risk, if you want to do something outside of your approach, you totally can. You just have to spend an extra raise. All they're saying by these roles is Wayland is going to be steering this scene in whatever ways 
a lost captain of the ATC could. Lost and crazy. Crazy captain, which actually gives him a lot more options to steer than a sane one. And then Jesse is steering the scene in whatever ways a super sneaky pirate captain can. Stealing the coat off of a sleeping soldier is absolutely within his approach. Wayland, however, trying to steal the keys off of Evenrude? Not so much. Not to say that he couldn't. He absolutely could. But because theft was not part of Wayland's original approach, I would have charged him the improvisation raise, which is always one raise to do anything outside of your original approach. Yeah, he's good at providing the distraction. Now, if he had said, I get the guy on me so that Jesse can easily pickpocket him from behind, totally legit. Or if he says to the guy, mermaids, tackles him to the ground and the keys get knocked loose into the sand. Okay, that fits his approach. It's ridiculous. He does have sea madness. He chose to be ridiculous. So I really liked how that dramatic sequence played out. Of course it did. It was edited. (laughs) But pre-edits, it did go very smoothly. 7th C does have a bit of a steep learning curve if you're coming from a, well, Dungeons & Dragons game. So it is still a little difficult to unlearn some habits. They are asking me, can I do this thing? Mm -hmm. They're looking at it as obstacles. Can I walk to the tent? Can I steal the keys off this guy? Can I convince him I'm crazy? John Wick said it best. Don't ask me if you can. Ask me how. Yeah. And since episodes one through three was technically session one, they are going to get better. Just you wait. I'm very excited. So, with clear goals in mind, I had to then apply pressure, which was time. They had to do this before dawn. Yes. And I had to establish that the stakes were high. Not only were their lives on the line, but the lives of the crew of the Black Betty were on the line, should they fail. And, can I mention, as the GM, you were not idle in this situation. You kept throwing curveballs at them. Their approaches were not about discovering the problems. No one was using notice. So problems would just arise. Oh, this guy's walking towards you. Oh, this dude is assigned to murder you. Oh, excellent. So the resource I used there was danger points. And for however many heroes there are at the table, I get a danger point for each of them. I start with two. I technically did not need to spend a danger point to introduce Roderick or even Rude to the scene. I spent a danger point to threaten Royce's life And I also spent a danger point to get the drop on Jesse. Those are how the GM keeps a dramatic sequence interesting. You don't plop them down into a static situation and say, okay, chip away at it with your raises. You put them down in a dynamic situation that's reacting, that's moving. And as problems arise, they'll say, oh, I need to do something about this. Tell me what you do, then spend a raise to make it stick. I can already hear other GMs saying, you didn't need to spend a danger point for those. Well, sometimes you do. Because of the bullshit rule. (laughs) As a narrator, I have full control over where the story should go. And sometimes they call bullshit on me. And I say, I spent a danger point. If you can spend a hero point for second story work and just appear in the throne room where it's very difficult normally to get in, I can spend a danger point to start a fire in said throne room. Yeah, danger points are really more of a behavioral tool than a game mechanic. They're there to prevent a mutiny at the table. 
And here's the thing. Established fact is established fact. The players already know, their characters already know, that the captain and the bosun, these scary people, are wandering around this beach. We know that. We've seen that. They witnessed this earlier. So having them wander around the beach is not unexpected. It's not a sudden twist. It's not dickish in any way. When there is a sudden twist, when there's something wrong that's completely out of left field. For instance, if Jesse sneaks up to the cages and looks in and discovers that everybody's wired up to gunpowder and there's a guard stationed there with a gun aimed at a barrel, that's worth the danger point because now the situation has changed drastically from expectations and they have to deal with it. So when setting up your scene, you're setting up the parameters that we're all agreeing to operate in. There's a contract there. And danger points let you break that contract while maintaining the larger contract of, because I spent a resource to do it, it's totally legit. And my dramatic sequence didn't end when all the raises were spent. It ended when an action sequence started. When Roderick decided to point his gun at Waylon's chest and decide to kill him then. And since it was my decision to spark the action sequence, I decided to give Evan and Patrick whatever raises they had left over as bonus dice into the next sequence. It doesn't make sense for me to take that resource away from you, because the narrative demands it is now an action sequence. That's just a house rule that I came up with, because oftentimes a dramatic sequence will directly go into an action sequence. That's super nice to do when things change early on in a sequence and people rolled a bunch of raises that they didn't get to use, or if things break out and someone didn't even get their turn yet. Note, Zoe did not play out the dramatic sequence to some other end just because there were raises left over. The mechanics didn't dictate when the scene ended. The fiction dictated when the scene ended. We moved into action, so the action sequence begins. The dramatic sequence raises, they can evaporate, or you can house rule it to do whatever you want with them to keep your players from mutinying. It was the story that was in the driver's seat. The story dictated that we moved on, so we moved on. It would have been weird to be just kind of, all right, I've got a gun to you, but let's talk this over a little while because we're not ready for the next scene yet. You got some dramatic raises. So how are you? You know? <laughs> So that's an important thing to remember. When the fiction is in charge, it's okay to drop the mechanical sequence in favor of the one that fits the scene better. And once a gun is placed against your ribs, I think action sequence makes sense. Absolutely. And for me, an action sequence begins when the danger becomes immediate. When bodily harm is no longer a far-fetched ideal, it is a fact. And... When the lives of your heroes and the lives of anybody else around you are at risk. I tend to take a looser approach. Because again, sometimes Inigo Montoya just cuts down three dudes in a second. I'm not going into initiative for that. Zoe might not even call for a die roll there. It's just like three guys run at Inigo and then they die. And now we go into a chase scene, which, hey, action sequence! Everybody can run this differently. But what matters is when you do use an action sequence, there should be some action. Action sequences should feel scary. It, they should feel threatening. Danger isn't this, oh man, we might lose this opportunity. Oh man, what if we don't get the idol or whatever? The danger here is there are bad guys and they are going to kill you. Or we might fall off of this 
spire to the city below, or the fire is getting closer to us. You know, bad guys and consequences is what we've got. Yep. And that's the thing that makes an action sequence different from a dramatic sequence is that there are opportunities and there are consequences inherent in that sequence. After establishing approaches and gathering dice, that's when the narrator describes the opportunities and the consequences on the scene, in the sequence. Now, there aren't always opportunities, but there is always some kind of consequence, whether it be a single one or many. Consequences are part of the mechanics of the game. They're a thing that you can spend raises to avoid, but they are story elements first. The only reason you can spend raises to avoid damage is because fictionally there is a raging inferno here. And that can arise randomly as a result of twists in the story. If someone throws a lantern down into the oily rags, well, the room's on fire now. There might be a new consequence that didn't exist before. And they can vanish just as easily. I need to spend these raises to avoid the flames while I jump out the window. The yard's not on fire, so I no longer need to do that. The consequence vanishes because the story has moved in a different direction. You ran one of the coolest action sequences I have seen in a while. Thank you. The consequence of the guards with guns. When did you introduce that? When it was narratively appropriate to do so. Gunshots on the beach alerted them. They're gonna hear that. It wasn't defined at the start. I know the, the book says define your consequences and such and opportunities and things at the beginning. You introduced it as soon as a bunch of gunshots happen in rapid succession. Well, the guards are going to wake up. The guards are going to grab their guns. They're going to start shooting over this way. And I thought that was brilliant. That was so, so cool. Did you feel that cool when running this action sequence? I did. I, I did feel pretty cool running that action sequence. And I'll tell you... They are very fast-paced. They are very quick. Uh, I know I edited it down to, you know, less than 30 minutes, but it felt like 30 minutes while we were running it. <laughs> Which reminds me of another big difference between action and dramatic sequences. The pacing. Action sequences are fast-paced, rapid-fire, immediate, go, go, go. Whereas dramatic sequences are slower-paced. Take your time make your decisions. A dramatic sequence can be held over the course of a couple of hours to a couple of days to even a couple of months. You know, I've run some let's skip time scenes uh, as dramatic sequences at sea. How long does it take you to get from one port to another? What happens in between? Tell me. An example that keeps popping into my mind when I think about this is you could run Sherlock Holmes versus Moriarty planning and counterplanning over the course of years as one dramatic sequence. You could literally run all of the Odyssey as one dramatic sequence. Also, you did something amazing in this. Uh, remember, I'm the number one fan. I'm just going to gush at you. I hope that's okay. I'm all out of raises, so... You're helpless to stop. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you ran an action sequence, but you didn't. You ran two at the same time. In an action sequence, the initiative is determined by raises. Whoever has the most raises goes, then they spend some raises, then whoever has the most raises now takes their turn, and so on down the list. And you started with who had the most raises, in this case, Jesse. And he and the captain went back and forth spending raises until you got down to the fives, and villains go first, so 
Evenrude spends his raise on initiative count five, and then you switched over to the fives by Wayland. But you didn't have Wayland spend one raise and then jump back to Jesse. You played out that scene back and forth between him and the bosun, then went back to Jesse. They were two independent action sequences with their own initiative order, and the fiction determined, or the cinematographer, the director, basically, determined when we switched back to the other. That is huge. Because one, it would be jarring to do one little brief moment and then leap back to the other side of the beach. But also, when people have a wild disparity in raises, you could just focus on the people with a lot of raises, then cut over to the other people with few, play out a few rounds with them, then cut back and all that. It was really, really well done to keep things flowing in each individual segment of this larger scene. When I started running games, I always saw things that happened in game as scenes in my head, like a movie. So I adopted the narrative style of using the lens of a camera to show the players and the audience and whoever is listening what they see. That's just always been my style. And it didn't make sense for the camera to cut back and forth so rapidly between Wayland and Jesse. It made sense for it to sit on Jesse for a little while until it got to that intense turning point and then switch over the camera. Same thing with Wayland. Got intense, switch it back. Keeps you on your toes. And in any movie that has a big giant fight, we don't follow one guy all the way through and then move to the other one. It's constantly cutting back and forth in between the scenes, in between those intense moments. I get to a good narrative cutaway and I cut away. And this is true without sequences and mechanics as well. I will run one person for a little while until it gets to a good narrative cutaway, and then I'll transition over to that character. Sometimes it leaves the other ones in cliffhangers, which is actually a lot of fun. And the rules as written didn't really fit that, so I made them fit it. That's a power that the GM has. How to implement these rules is in your power, and you can do that in ways that best serve the story. Another thing that happened in this session that I'm giddy about. If you read a lot of forum posts about 7C or look at blogs about 7C, there is a problem that people talk about constantly, which is duelists. Yes, sir. Duelists are scary on paper. Whereas everyone else has to spend a raise to deal a wound, they can spend a raise and do three, maybe four, whatever their weaponry is. They are so much more efficient than anybody else at dealing out pain. This leads to this question. Everyone says, well, how do you balance duelists? How do you have duelists and non-duelists in the same party? And how do you make it a challenge? And do you just have to have duelist villains to fight your duelists and then other people? Or do you just throw 500 brutes at them and just have endless tides of guards? You could, but it gets a little silly. And the reason it gets a little silly is you're looking at the mechanics and trying to bend the story to fit. You get trapped inside. I've noticed with duelist players, myself included, I play a duelist in Zoe's game. You look at your list of maneuvers and suddenly that becomes your whole world. You stop thinking in terms of fictional actions. It's not, 
I rush at him and strike him with my sword, you think, I slash, I faint, I bash, I lunge. Those are rules terms. Those aren't fictional terms. It's not describing an action as 7C defines it. And thus you end up in this little box. Sam and I have affectionately called this the duelist box. Jesse is not a duelist, right? Nope. He has no advantages or backgrounds that allow him to be so. Captain Evenrude. Captain Evenrude is a duelist. Was. Was a duelist. (laughs) And that is amazing. What we have there is a non-duelist going up against a duelist, and it's not even fair. That dude was outclassed from the beginning. He's faced with a man with a sword. The guy's incredible. What does Jesse do? I grab him by the throat and slam him against a tree. Well, that's terrific. And that's an action. That's fictional. Well, let's give that mechanical weight. How are you spending the rays? I'm spending the rays to put pressure on him. So if he does anything other than say my name, he has to spend extra raises. And because he's being choked, Zoe's like, oh, he's not going to say his name. He also didn't know his name to begin with, which makes things difficult. So stab away. But now that super efficient one raise for three damage becomes a less efficient two raises for three damage. Now, on average, I'm doing one and a half damage per raise. That's only a little bit better than the average person. And it's Jesse's turn again. And what does Jesse do next? Takes the sword away. You want to know what makes a duelist terrifying? Their weapon. You're not dueling without a sword, without the weapon. And so he neatly solved the duelist problem by thinking fictionally. Also, Jesse got stabbed and did not care. Not caring if you get stabbed, really handy with a duelist. It was even Rude's idea. Maybe I can threaten him. I'll show him how much damage I can do and he'll back away. Uh-uh. And that's also getting at one of the most important differences between a 7C action sequence and fights in other games. In D&D, you fight till the other side is dead. You fight till all the hit points are gone. That's what the monsters are there for, to bleed hit points until they're gone. Here... The stakes of a combat are fictional, which means you don't have to fight until you're burger. You don't have to fight till the other guys are all dead. You have to fight until you get what you want or until they decide that they want to live much more than they want what they want. Duelists are scary on paper. They can be efficient killing machines. And you can make a min-max character... You can make the best damn character you can, who's really good at all of the things that they are really good at, but they're not narratively interesting if they don't have any weaknesses. Same thing on the narrator side. I can make the worst villain. They are built specifically to fuck with you, but that doesn't make it interesting. It doesn't really give any meat to the story if I just make the best villain I can and try to kill you with them. When you stop thinking about the mechanics and think narratively, fiction first, that's when things get interesting. If your action sequences feel like they're lagging or you're trying to figure out how to handle duelists or guns or any of the things that seem like on paper they're too good, look at it fictionally. Encourage your players to think fictionally. And oftentimes you'll find a way around it. Also, it helps if you have the insistent advantage, like Jesse did, so that his pressure lasted the whole round. Oh boy, 
that say my name thing. Oh, God, I loved it. I loved it. And what's up with the hand? Well, we'll, well okay, we're not just going to geek out about this. We're not going to geek out about it, but we are going to touch upon it. There is another important mechanic I am going to talk about. Corruption. When you play 7C, you play a hero with a capital H. And you are pitted against villains with capital Vs and monsters with capital Ms. And the only true way to die in 7C, to be killed, is if a villain or monster murders you. Capital M. Caveat, you can also die if you say, it's time for me to die. You can also tell your GM how you want to die. And then be terrified when circumstances start looking a lot like that. So, the thing that happened with Jesse... Strangling an unarmed man, not exactly something to cheer over. To be fair, even Rude did try to get the last shot in on him. If they're still shooting you in the gut, you are still in self-defense. Yes, still in self-defense mode. Now, Rules is Written states that any villainous act, such as murder, torture, or not saving someone when you have all chances to save them, grants you a chance at a point of corruption and possibly a chance at losing your character entirely to corruption, not even getting points. The reason there are capital H heroes and capital V villains and capital C corruption in this game is because it's based on swashbuckling stories. It's a swashbuckler fantasy. And in swashbuckler movies and stories and all that, there are good people and there are bad people. You know who the good guys are. And even at the worst of times, they'll let their enemy go. They'll do the right thing. And the villain will always do just the bastardly move <laughs> every time. Because that's how these stories are framed, which is why they're part of this game. If you want to play gritty anti-heroes on the Seven Seas, other systems might actually fit better than this one. Or you might have to hack this one a little bit because this is about those tropes. The rules as written for corruption represent a very specific kind of fall from grace, which is the unexpectedly abrupt. You get corruption, and every time you do, you roll. And if you roll under your corruption, you are a villain, lose your character. That's not your style, is it? Certainly not. Well, yes, Joker said it best in The Killing Joke, all it takes is one bad day. With a game so intensely narrative... I would be remiss and doing it a disservice if I didn't take advantage of the tender, juicy meat that is a redemption story. Grappling with guilt. Dealing with the repercussions of your actions. The consequences of what you have done. Those stories, to me, are a delicacy. And, man, are they rich and amazing when you get them. So, if you're at my table and you're about to commit a villainous act, which I will warn you will gain you corruption, instead of leaving it up to chance, letting arbitrary dice decide your fate, I give you that point of corruption, and every point of corruption you gain with every other villainous act you commit. Same as rules is written, all the way up to 10. At 10, you still become a villain, I take your character, you can no longer play them. And, of course, you can always make a story to get rid of your corruption. It's five steps. If you do a lot of villainy, it's going to take a lot. But you can always be redeemed. Yes. And we did have a mechanic in there, right? Yes. For any hero that has corruption, I gain an extra danger point. Specifically to mess with that hero. Yes. So you get to be more of a jerk 
because they were a jerk until they can get rid of all of their corruption. So there's a tangible reason why you would want to stop doing that because all the villains have more juice behind them because you did the villain thing. And that speaks to one of the major takeaways with this. The mechanic should always be trying to catch up with the story. And the story should never be bending for the sake of the mechanics. There are no 7th C police. No one's going to come and tell you you're doing it wrong. The golden rule of all RPGs is if everyone's having fun, you're doing it right. And if someone isn't having fun, something needs to change. And by the way, you GMs out there, you are part of everyone. If you're not having fun, if the game is a chore, if you're getting burned out, the golden rule is being violated. Something needs to change. And so in this, if corruption is unfun, ditch it. If there's some aspect of the system that you're like, oh, this doesn't fit the way the story I want to tell goes and the stories my players want to experience goes, that's when you change those rules. I will say, however, 7C has rewarded me a lot for trying to meet it on its own terms and not to bend it into something that it isn't. The changes that Zoe has done, giving people extra dice for having spare raises left over, not having corruption being an, a potentially instant deal breaker, but being a growing kind of thing. Those are still part of Swashbuckler fantasy. Those are all still very much in line with what 7C is trying to do. It's just the particular vibe she's going for. She wants to give the players more choice in their outcomes. And so that's all consistent with that. So I guess the main thing is try to figure out what kind of game you're trying to play. It's really up to you how you want to run your game. This is how I run mine. You don't have to run it like I do. If dramatic sequences aren't jiving with you, then ditch them. Funny thing, every sequence can also just be run as a risk. You can just roll dice, spend those raises however you want for things, and then just role play it out like crazy. That's really wall of sequences. So as long as you're making raises and making stuff happen with them, as long as the raises are providing the mechanical weight for the fictional acts and are your resource to change things, you're still playing 7C. In summary, play the 7C that you want to play. Run the 7C that you want to run. It's really easy to establish that in the very beginning with your players and your narrator and just be like, this is the game that I want to play and this is the game I want to run. Communication is key. Just talk to your players. Talk to your GM. Just talk. Speaking of talking, I, I think that's enough, right? I think that's enough notes from the narrator. I feel like that, that's a lot of notes. Are you quizzing them? Is that how this goes? Yes, at the end of the season, there will be a long quiz. You walk into the writer's room and there is a desk and a number two pencil. And an hourglass on my desk. Thank you so much for having me on here to just endlessly geek out about this thing that I love. It is all your fault and I accept nothing less. <laughs> You're the reason I'm here to geek out with in the first place. And I'm glad I can geek out with you and all of our friends here. I am geeking about two things that I love. The system and this podcast. I'm very much, I am a fan. I'm really enjoying it so far. Every gunshot in the last episode landed so hard in my ears. and It was amazing. And I'm so excited for what's coming next. I'm so excited 
for these characters and where they're going. I'm so thrilled at just the chemistry between them and everything. Ah, that hug moment. Oh, God. It was amazing. It was so good. But uh, I am... I'm just so thrilled and proud of everything that you're doing. And I'm really, really excited to see where it goes. And anytime you want me back, let me know and I will be here. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime to come and geek out with me about this thing that we love. More than likely, it will be to talk about rules and a couple of other rulings we didn't get to today. Maybe even stories. But that's for another time. Until then, I'll see you next time, Sam. Well, friend... You've stuck it out this long. Make yourself at home. Yep. Just gonna go grab some water. You should too. And I'll be right back.